Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I'm speaking with horror icon Rebecca McKendry about her new Lovecraftian horror film, Glorious. I'm so excited to be talking about your film, Glorious, all about Lovecraftian horror in a glory hole. What could be better? Yeah, that was um, that was a wild pitch to have to shop around. We we reached a point where we actually dropped the word glory hole because we we discovered as soon as we said the word glory hole as we were pitching it, people would just be like, "Oh, this sounds like bathroom sophomoric," and they wouldn't read it. Um, really? So, yeah. So we we ended up we shopped as um, waiting for Godot in a bathroom, um, and that that definitely got more glances. That's a really great pitch, though. Thanks. Yeah, it comes from our absurdist theater background. Um, and and that's definitely kind of what propelled us towards this project to begin with was we saw that element of like a waiting for Godot-esque story. Well, and it's so wonderful because you have so many references that are very highbrow throughout this film because you've got Beckett in there, you've mm-hmm. got the myth of Cronus in there. I was a Latin teacher for 15 years. So of course I geeked out about all the mythology stuff you did. Okay. So I was Latin as well. I did eight years. Um, Art Sperry was my Latin teacher in, in high school. I just love him dearly. So yeah. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The Latin community is really tight in Virginia. So I know. know, I know. <laughs> that's why I think I would name drop him because he's he's yeah. been doing this for a long time. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my, my full Greek mythology. He literally made us translate both the Odyssey and the Iliad from Latin to um, English in high school. Um, so yeah, that's that's a lot of my kind of Greek and Mo- Roman mythology that we we infused in there, and we got some Sartre. Yeah, that was we do love our mythology. The Uiklo just made me so happy <laughs> with Gary C. I thought mm-hmm. that was incredible. Okay, so I'm going to stop just randomly saying things so that my actual listeners can understand what I'm talking about. It's really interesting because Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot is such an important piece of the theater of the absurd. And it's really fascinating to see how you play with that idea with two people, one of whom is maybe a figment of the imagination and or a Lovecraftian monster and or a conscience. Well, (laughs) the other one is not what they appear to be. Yeah, Dave and I, um, we come from a theater background. We we went to Virginia Tech for our undergrad, and that's where we met. And we met in the theater program at Virginia Tech, which at the time was rather small. I think it's gotten a little bit bigger, um, and they've definitely incorporated more of a film side since then. But at the time, it was small. It was mostly black box theater, and it was mm-hmm. a lot of weird stuff. Like It was a lot of like weird, esoteric you know, I'm going to stand on the stage and tap this drum while somebody else makes toast for an hour. And this is my art and it represents, you know, the plight of of coal miners or whatever. Um, and it was it was very much kind of this weird, absurdist um, construction that we grew up in. And we both grew up with a love of it and an equal amount of kind of finding hilarity in it. And we were both really, um, and that's what brought us together was like our love of young ones and um, kids in the hall and kind of the absurdist humor that comes out of that. The State um, was a big sketch show at the time period, even Monty Python, um, and just that level of absurdity that comes out of it. And we quickly discovered that that's, and this is where our real connection happens, is those are our favorite types of movies. Um, The ones that bring in this level of lowbrow, highbrow, and absurdity all at the same time. So things like trauma, 
um, repo man, um, just this, this level of what the hell am I watching mixed with somehow it's really smart and it still feels like art. And so this goes back to Dave and mine's roots. And so in the middle of the pandemic, we had been doing um, a lot of script doctor work. It's honestly what we do kind of day to day. Um, and so we'd been doing a lot of script doctor work on other people's projects and and a lot of lifetime stuff. And so then suddenly getting this the original version of this script from Josh Hull and which had these elements in it and being like, oh my gosh, we we can push this even further and really exacerbate that kind of absurdist humor out of it. Um, and that was kind of our approach. Like when we started, we both. I, that's actually, I read the script first and I immediately came out of my office and was like, Dave, what if I told you I just read Waiting for Godot in a bathroom? And he was immediately like, go on. <laughs> and um, then we went back and we read Waiting for Godot again. And we said, how can we make this, this? And um, that was our approach from the start. That's so, so much great. so that I, I passed out copies of Waiting for Godot um, on set. Like I brought, I'd been picking them up at Goodwills um, throughout oh, the nice. year that we've been shopping it around. So I had like six copies and I was like passing them out to the DP. I gave the production designer one. And yeah, it was just everybody reads Waiting for Godot. That's awesome. I mean, everyone should read Beckett constantly in as many languages as possible. I think <laughs> I think our world would be better for it. <laughs> and I love the experimentality meets absurdism meets classical literature, because I feel like all of those things are bound up in each other. And there's this really great visual language that you come up with in the film, where you are meeting these very strong visual representations with the VFX, mm -hmm. with this very stately cinematography, that's really a beautiful juxtaposition. So we really, when I was looking at the cinematography, um, when I was shopping it around, the first question is like, how do I shoot a bathroom? Because I've shot bathrooms before. <laughs> I mean, like Lifetime films, they, there's a bathroom scene in every fucking Lifetime film. Um, Psycho Granny. Even, Psycho <laughs> Granny. I mean, she's doing pregnancy <laughs> tests in there. And yeah. even in All the Creatures, we have a bathroom scene. We have a very complicated bathroom scene where we had like a robotic camera that, that repeated the same movements over and over so he could talk to himself in the mirror. And the big takeaway from all of that is bathrooms suck um, because everything is reflective. Everything, the tiles, the faucet itself, there's mirrors everywhere and everything, it not only reflects your lights, it reflects your sound. And so there's echoes and you can't put the camera anywhere and you can't stash the lights anywhere. Like Psycho Granny, literally, if you watch um, our bathroom scene from that, that is me and my DP are standing in the shower together for most of that. Um <laughs> And so it's just, they suck to film. And so then it became, well, even if it's a bigger bathroom, even if it's like a rest stop and I have some space to dance, like it's still a fucking bathroom. Like, how do I make it interesting? And so I kept saying, um, as I was pitching it out, I want to make the most beautiful bathroom movie ever. Um, I tend to like I'll call it traditional cinematic filming style to begin with. I like a lot of movement. I don't like handheld camera unless it's necessary. Like I use it with impact. I like to stay on sticks for a lot of it. Um, or in this case, like I wanted to stay on steady cam. I wanted it mm -hmm. to be smooth. And that was kind of my big thing is like, if I'm in a bathroom and I'm just doing locked shots, it's going to feel real tight real quickly. And I wanted that element of claustrophobia 
but I was worried about how it was going to look visually if it was all locked shots. And so that was basically the way that I approached it from the start was I need a DP who I can keep on steady the entire film. Like we can never not be on steady or dolly. It constantly has yeah. to be moving um, to make it feel that that it is kind of this open landscape to make it beautiful. And so then it became like, how do we infuse cosmos into that and not even just cosmos like every element of the film the two things that we infused into it was both cosmos and water um because with lovecraft those two things are like interchangeable for Mm -hmm. him like everybody comes from space but they somehow end up at the bottom of the ocean um and so space and water are kind of in the same it's all otherworldly it's all the other for him And so knowing that we were in a bathroom and could not go either of those places, how do we bring those elements into every element of the film? So both like the the special effects when we were designing out the design of the monster and how it was going to evolve throughout the film. It was let's make it watery while also cosmic. The lighting, watery and cosmic. The soundscape, watery and cosmic. And so even with the camera movement, it was always supposed to feel like we're floating through space or floating through water. Like it was very much like bringing all of that in and putting it in every element um, without ever actually having either um, on set. And you also achieved that in the practical effects too, which is really stunning the way that you do that in blood and gore and water imagery. And it's just beautiful the way that it plays out. But I also want to ask you really quickly about one thing that I've seen a lot of reviews specifically talking about. And that is this idea that you're really commenting on toxic masculinity with this film. That's what the film is to me. How do you talk to people about this topic in this time where everyone reacts like, get thee behind me, Satan? Yeah. So this is a big conversation piece that I was constantly having on set because people, you know, it's always what's the bigger message of the film? Is this just a fun little film about a dude locked in a bathroom? And I kept saying, no, no, like this, it's, it's at its core. This is about toxic masculinity. It's about the fear that goes along with toxic masculinity. Wes is scared of everything. He's scared of women to the point that he has to push it to the extreme. He's scared of other dudes. Like there's a level of queer fear happening there with Mm -hmm. he's scared of this other dude in the bathroom. And so this, and, and it's got a lot of dad built into it. The idea of the toxic masculinity of both of Gat's father and Wes's father is what made them continue down this path and become who they are. And it's the idea that the toxic masculinity will just continue breathing itself and festering and breaking that path of the patriarchal toxic masculinity. And so for me, like the biggest moments in this are in the dream sequences. Because that's where I get to shove Wes's head into a giant bear vagina um, <laughs> or have all the women sticking their hands inside of Wes's abdomen. Like those are the big moments for me. Um, and I knew from the beginning that that was the biggest thing that I wanted. Um, and Ryan and I had huge conversations about this, that like at his root is fear. That's mm-hmm. every single bit of it is fear. Um, and, and he resents his father for everything that he did, but at the same time, he has become his father. And same thing with Gat, like he resents his father for everything that he did, but at the same time, he has become the weapon that his father always wanted. Um, and, and trying, Gat is legit trying to break the path and he's trying to get Wes to join him and break that chain. Um, and so Wes has to make the decision to do it. So at its core, 
it's all toxic masculinity for me. Oh my gosh. It's so beautifully done. I really feel like the myth of the son, the fear of the son replacing the father, the whole fear of emasculation that obviously you get in that myth. And we really wanted to play with that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the whole thing. And I mean, our biggest line, um, which is somewhat, it's not, it's not even a reveal because you don't even know what's happening, but like your genitals are of no consequence. Like, yeah. We wanted, yeah. like your penis, <laughs> you love- actually thought your penis was going to save the universe. Like I, that was honestly the most important line for me because that is the movie is, is, oh, your penis is going to save the universe, huh? And that was where, you know, that's, that would have been my tagline if I'd had my choice. Well, and I love that moment in the film so much because you do a good job of building the suspense to make you think, oh, what's going in that hole now? It's really wonderful in terms of both the way that the script was written, but also the way it was edited to give that moment such clarity Mm -hmm. as part of the message of the film. So thank you. Yeah, I love that. Oh my God. And even designing the whole, like I knew I wanted the whole, cause we wanted to treat it like an altar. Um, <laughs> like if you can have a glory hole in your movie, we were like, it better look fucking glorious. And so I went to one of my friends who literally designs monsters. Like that is his job is he, he is like a, a, a creature designer for movies, Clint Carney. And he does a lot of TV. And I was like, I need something around a glory hole that looks I wanted an element of sexy, but I didn't want it to necessarily look sexual. So I was like, give her like three boobs was literally one of my notes. Like, you know, she can be sexy, but not sexual. If anything, I want it to look kind of repulsive simultaneously. And he just did an amazing job coming up with this art um, that feels majestic and weird and it's got a sex quality to it, but not sexual. And it makes you question why anybody would draw that there. But yeah, we wanted it to have kind of this, this religious altar experience to it. Yeah. And it's really quite a stunning piece. And then for people who are looking at all of the artistic and design elements of the film and putting them together, what was the most important thing that you wanted people to take from the design elements as a whole? Well, I knew the bathroom was a big part. Like I knew the bathroom itself needed to be a character. Um, But at the same time, it was always this idea of the other world. Like, how do we make this a place that feels like an actual bathroom that still has the low bow quality that we can play around with? Like the sink's not working. It's gross. He's, you know, covered in, you know, bacteria now and things like that. But at the same time, it has this otherworldly quality to it. And we kept saying, how do we exploit a rest stop bathroom? Like we, we are big campers um, and we travel all over the country. So I've seen a lot of rest stops. And so it was always kind of looking at it from a new eye. Like I'd walk in and immediately go, if I was locked in here, how would I exploit it? Like, what are the elements in this rest stop that I would immediately say, oh yeah, that's how I'm going to get out. And so we immediately started looking at like where the vents go, where the windows go and how we can, we treated it like an escape room um, basically. And then kind of went from that point. Um, But design elements overall, we had so many meetings beforehand about how to create unity through all of them Mm. um, and how to create this blending of the highbrow and the lowbrow together. Like, you know, we have um, this this picture on the wall, this old timey ad um, that is incredibly sexist. It says something about, you know, dames being, 
you know, just as good. This smoke's almost as good as a good dame or something like that. And then somebody's drawn a mustache on it and drew little nipples on her and things like that. So it was really trying to to blend all of these elements of the film together so that it does have this unity um, to it so that we do have, you know, the heady highbrow story of Gat's origin, which we pulled mostly from Kronos mythos. There's a little bit of kind of creationism in there as well. Um, but at the same time, we're putting it on a bathroom wall and he's looking at it on a stall right after he's taken a piss. And so, you know, kind of blending all of it. So that was it was all just a kind of about like making it feel unified. And that the nice thing about doing this during the pandemic was everybody had time. So me saying like, let's hop on Zoom a whole bunch and like really <laughs> hammer this out and make sure that we all feel the unity between all of these different filmic elements. Like that is the biggest thing I was able to do was a fuck ton of prep on this. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about filmmaking in the pandemic. I feel like the Zoom experience has made everybody an expert at the prep process where they wouldn't be before. Yeah, especially like doing things like Lifetime or even smaller stuff or music videos. Like prep is a luxury mm -hmm. um, that you don't necessarily get because you're going to be like rolling, you know, at best you'll get two weeks sometimes, especially with the Lifetime stuff. Like I'm lucky if I get that um, just because everybody's going from thing to thing. And it's very much mm -hmm. like we can't stop paying them until a week out. And so you get you get this much time. Um, but with this one, we were really able to say, well, nobody's really doing anything. Let's get on and figure this out. And so, and this really kind of showed me the type of prep that I like to do, like coming from a theater background yeah. for me, the, the project is made in the prep. Like by the mm -hmm. time I get to set, I kind of want it to not necessarily run itself, but I've made all my big decisions by that point. Yeah. Um, at that point, it just becomes fine tuning. And so like, you know, the look, where everything's going to go, what couch, why the couch should be a particular color. Like I've made all those decisions by the time we get to that point. And even rehearsals, like if I have my choice, I will always do a ton of rehearsals yeah. because by the time I get to set, I want it to be like that theatrical performance where it's running exactly. itself now. Exactly. Um, and I can do like big 10 minute takes because it runs itself. And so that's where I think that a lot of the really good performances are born out of is, is knowing it to the point where you can submerge yourself in it. Um, it's not a, it's not a view that's shared by a lot of directors. A lot of directors love the spontaneity and I yeah. get that, but yeah, I, I love rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. I also come from a theatrical background and I did the same thing on my film where my actors were like, really, do we have to rehearse this again? And I'm like, yes, we're going to keep rehearsing on Zoom. <laughs> I spent days with Wes and we literally, we taped out the entire set. Like, cause the, the place where we were shooting at the soundstage that we were on, it had a theater two doors down wow. um, that we were able to run our rehearsals on. So by complete happenstance, we taped out our set um, with uh, gaff tape on the stage. And then that's where we did all of our blocking rehearsals. So by that that's point, incredible. he'd been rehearsing with JK over Zoom for weeks. Um, and then it was just all blocking. So we had like two, three days of blocking rehearsals on this set to the point where we were really joking, like, you know, glorious comes to fringe fest next year because we were running it like a stage play. Um, and that comes through a little bit in the way that we filmed it, where it is filmed it like a stage play. Um, yeah. but that's legit how we were rehearsing it and my background. So there you go. So it makes sense. But that's such a beautiful luxury yeah. to have. And mm -hmm. I feel like in the film, all of those elements really come to 
together and they play out so beautifully. I want to thank you so much for this work and this interview. I deeply appreciate what you're doing in this space. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I deeply appreciate that you are are keeping film production um, alive and and doing its thing in my hometown. Um, Keep at it and make it bigger. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So anyway, I'll talk to you later. Take care. Thank you so much, Ariel. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. (laughs) 